Hi, I am Alu and I am your host at Fitteros. Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat, the podcast by Fitteros. Welcome to Fitness Pro Chat by Fitterobic. If you're looking to improve your health and well-being to lead a healthy, fit and fulfilling life, whether you're an amateur or a professional athlete, this podcast is for you. Now, on to the show. Nicole Golden has been a health and fitness professional since 2014 when she left the field of education to pursue a full-time career in fitness. Nicole holds a Master of Science degree from Concordia University Chicago in Applied Exercise Science with a concentration in sports nutrition. She is a National Academy of Sports Medicine NASM master trainer and a certified group fitness instructor. Nicole is a sports nutritionist certified through the International Society of Sports Nutrition. She is the owner of FWF Wellness where she specializes in corrective exercises, nutrition coaching and training special populations. She has a great deal of experience working with a wide variety of clients including female athletes, cancer survivors, older adults with medical comorbidities and clients who have undergone bariatric surgery. She also has a special interest in coaching clients in recovery from substance use disorders. Thank you Nicole for joining me today. Thank you for having me. Nicole, first things first, I am very eager to start uh, and speak on this topic which is very interesting on uh, human psychology. What role does human psychology play in influencing our food choices and eating behaviors? Psychology is probably one of the most important things. I'll go ahead and back this up. Um all cultures of all humans, food is a very big part of our cultures whether it's celebration or it's associated with rituals and it's really associated with social behaviors more than anything else. So psychology is a huge piece of how we perceive food, what we perceive as good and bad food, um how it influences our lives and how we sort of deal with it on a day-to-day basis. Um it's an important thing I always bring up to my clients especially as we get into the topic of healthy eating behaviors and weight loss that social uh, socio-cultural influences are very very critical in influencing our eating behaviors. So would it be right to relate this to emotional eating? You talk about cultural factors that affect our eating habits. So would it be right and closely related to emotional eating uh, also affecting our nutritional decisions and how can we better manage it? Emotional eating is something that's very very difficult to manage because the psychology and the physiology of of emotional eating is complex. We believe sure. that emotional eating is primarily driven by dopamine and if you're familiar with dopamine that's sort of the chemical in our brains that yes. tells us we're getting a reward. Um True. we see that same increase in chemicals with drug and alcohol use as well. So what happens is when people are feeling stressed what they tend to be looking for is what we call a dopamine hit. So they're yeah. looking to relieve their stress and the way we do that is by increasing dopamine levels. Now the types of foods that tend to increase dopamine levels are sugary, fatty, what we call uh really tasty foods that aren't necessarily cool. the highest nutrition value. So what happens is when looking for that dopamine hit, people tend to develop a pattern and this is sort of how binge eating disorders develop. They are stressed, they look for those high energy, low nutrient density foods. they feel better temporarily and then it almost reinforces that behavior. So that's really what we're dealing with with emotional eating. Um some of it too does come from cultural background, but the term emotional eating tends to refer to that stress eating. Does society 
also pay, play any role in our perception of healthy eating, uh, especially when it, we talk about emotional eating and how dopamine affects our emotional eating. It's very difficult to manage. Uh, so is there in, any role of society and culture as well into emotional eating? Yes, this topic has actually been pretty extensively researched. Um, there are there were a couple of authors in 2019, uh, Fox Fang and Assal, that did a study and theorized that globalization of society has actually led to an increase in obesity and that type of eating behavior. When people went from what we call a subsistence economy, where they actually had to go out and get their own food or grow their own food, to a cash-based economy that involves um, trading money for food and food being more accessible. So that's sort of like the macro level of that. On a micro level, just looking at human societies and how the culture will impact obesity and overeating, um, Pacific Island countries like Fiji have the highest rates of obesity in the world. And an interesting study was done in 2022 where they actually interviewed 15 mothers in Fiji and asked about the views and why they provide you know, these types of foods for their family and why they think their family is obese. And culturally, the mother is tasked with providing the food for the family and food is highly correlated with love for the family. And there is a very displaced sort of interesting focus on those high energy, high fat foods as showing love. We see this in other cultures as well. Even in America, there are some cultural groups where that is the case. So there is, some of it is cultural. And of course, some of it is that food is very easy to access. So emotional eating behaviors can be very easily reinforced. That probably, there's a lot of talk about mindful eating. Is it connected to human psychology? How can uh, practicing mindfulness improve our relationship with food? I do try to give that type of strategy to a lot of my nutrition clients when we get past the habit development stage. And I know we'll be talking about that later on in the podcast. Mindful eating is very difficult to achieve when we're on the go. Now, in America, actually, this is kind of a funny story. Americans are always on the go. That's just part of our culture. It's go, go, go. It's high stress. We don't take time to sleep. We don't take time to sit down. It's sort of funny because when I was in Amsterdam back in 2019, somebody uh -huh. told me that they can tell an American on the street versus a European because only Americans will walk down the street eating food. European oh, okay. culture is very much, they, they sit down, they enjoy their coffee, they enjoy their yeah. snacks. So uh -huh. how does that relate to you know what you were talking about? Uh, mindful eating, you have to be able to take the time to sit down and socially and sensory enjoy your food. So it's very, very difficult to mindfully eat when you're not taking regular meal times, you're not eating with other people. So it's that on-the-go behavior that tends to make that very, very difficult without counting calories or counting macros. Um, some of the things that we can recommend to improve mindful eating, sitting down, creating a balanced plate, Avoiding distractions. Don't play on your smartphone. Don't watch TV. The only distraction that should be there is another human being where you're engaging in conversation. You want to slow down your eating and not be in a rush, which Americans are very guilty True. of that. True. Yeah. And try to sort of savor and 
be mindful of the sensory experience of food. The problem with this is when I have coaching clients, the biggest for nutrition, the biggest issue I run into is they don't want to take the time to do that. It is a big time investment. So Uh in cultures where that's more normal, it's easier to mindful eat than cultures that are constantly on the go. That provides a lot of insights on mindful eating and especially the eating habits of different cultures, uh, Americans and Europeans. Uh, And I I would say uh, Indians are not too far behind because uh, right now we have the mix of both the cultures and uh, some of us uh, go the American way of eating on the and and some of us uh, prefer to eat like Europeans. So it, it's a mixed culture. That brings me to next question. So the, one of the difficult tasks for anyone is to adopt healthier eating habits. Although there is a lot documented around healthier eating habits and how can we adopt healthier eating habits or how can we adopt mindful eating? But it is very difficult as an individual for anyone to adopt or break the psychological barriers for healthier eating habits. So how exactly we can break these barriers uh, for eating habits and, and become healthy? So this is actually a very interesting topic because it takes an entire lifestyle overhaul. People think it's just eating habits they need to change, but it's actually their lifestyle habits. Um, for example, I have a client who's in her mid-60s and always on the go. She has two jobs. She works in a human services job during the day and six nights a week she works at a restaurant as a server. I asked her why she has to have this much work and she said because she doesn't want to have no scheduled time in her life. So it's affecting her eating habits because she doesn't have time to sit down and eat lunch. She's constantly eating snacks on the go. So one of the strategies we came up with for this client was to take one day off a week to plan her meals And to also make sure that every day she's actually taking a lunch. So it's sort of a nutritional intervention, but it's more of a lifestyle intervention. It's very difficult to eat well-balanced meals when you're constantly snacking on the go. So it really is about evaluating your lifestyle habits and see if they are conducive to healthy eating habits before you even address the nutritional issues. So what's common with, now my husband's a physician, and what's common with physicians is they tend to not eat all day. And then in the evening, have a very, very large meal, which we know is actually very unhealthy for you. It increases fat storage. It uh, reduces your metabolic rate. So those sorts of things would be another example of a lifestyle factor we would have to adjust for before even looking at uh, healthy eating habits. Uh, One of the other things that I tend to recommend is once we can get past those eating pattern stages, one of the things I think is really important is making sure that people get enough protein in their diets. Consuming protein does help to reduce overeating because it has a higher satiety value. It helps to maintain your muscle mass, which helps to maintain a higher metabolic rate. And uh, we just don't eat enough of it. The recommendations of uh, 0.8 grams per kilogram of body weight of protein per day is entirely too low and based only on theory. So really, people need to aim more for one gram to one and a half grams per kilogram a day of protein. The other pieces, why it's important to have multiple meals a day as opposed to just one large meal is protein intake. Your body can only utilize about 20 to 40 grams at a time of protein before it gets stored. So if you want to maximize good usage of protein, you want to split it up into ideally four to five meals a day rather than just one or two. 
most indian diets are full of carbohydrates and less on mm-hmm. protein i mean do you do you have you worked with any indian client as well cite some examples of their food habits i will say most of the indian clients i've worked with have been physicians so they do oh. tend to fall into that eating but you're correct in that the diet tends to be very high in carbohydrates a high yes. carbohydrate diet isn't necessarily a problem or unhealthy if the person is active like physically active carbohydrates are not a problem for protein to increase, especially in a vegetarian person, we tend to recommend supplementation. You can find pretty good products on the market that are based on whey protein. And if a client is not wanting to consume whey protein because it's technically an animal product, even pea proteins are acceptable. True. So, And you can eat enough protein with just plant-based diet. It is just harder and you have to be more intentional about it. So if that in, in the case of someone who may be a vegetarian consuming a lot of carbohydrates, paying attention to uh, plant protein sources and supplementation can be a good strategy for overcoming that. Goal for any individual is to lose weight or improve their body shape and uh, reduce the BMI because that's the first parameter most individuals try and bring into control uh, when it comes to weight loss or their uh, Goal to fitness. However, the problem arises when uh, they start dieting or exercising uh, takes to extremes. So how can we adopt a middle path or a path that is consistent with our daily lives? That's a very common problem. Um, I will tell you, I speak from Americans. Love ex- we love extremes. We love extreme behavior. We expect everything to be quick and fast. When somebody goes into a weight loss program, A big problem is that a lot of the advertising that is out there for weight loss promises fast, easy, quick results. I always warn people that if you ever see the words fast, quick, and easy, run away. It is a terrible idea. Why is that? Because what really works, and and they've done, there have been so many studies on this. This is very, very strongly based on evidence, is long-term small changes that are sustainable and habit-forming will work for weight loss, whereas large amounts of weight lost at once or uh, trying to do things very quick and easy will tend to cause very quick weight regain and a higher subsequent weight than when you started. So when somebody is trying to lose weight, the most important thing to look at are lifestyle factors and help with my own clients. I try to teach them lifestyle habits and try to caution them against trying to focus on weight loss. Another important piece, as opposed to making a goal that is to lose a certain amount of weight, I think it's more important to focus on a behavioral goal. For instance, instead of I want to lose 30 pounds in two months, which is very unrealistic, I would say instead, how about we look at trying to aim for 7,500 to 10,000 steps a day for two months? Or I'm going to eat this many grams. I'm going to eat uh, 1.5 per gram, uh, grams per kilogram of protein per day. What I tell people is if you can, you can control your own behavior, but you cannot control your body's weight. You are not a computer. Um, so the important thing is to focus on those lifestyle changes and evaluate your progress based on adherence to changes rather than weight loss itself. The weight loss will follow. Um, and that brings me sort of to another important point surrounding weight loss. We are not computer systems. We don't Yes, calories in and calories out does dictate weight loss, but your body is a living organism. 
we have Absolutely. thousands upon thousands of years of evolution that tell our bodies when to store food, when to burn off food. So what happens is people tend to diet, your body will eventually resist the dieting. I'm sure lots of people call, have seen a weight loss plateau. Uh, very, very common because your body will change its metabolic rate based on how much food and what kinds sure. of food you're giving it and how physically active you are. So again, bringing you back to that point of trying to change the lifestyle versus trying to just cut calories and try to lose a lot of weight very quickly is really important. Do you have any uh, recommendations for them uh, who hit a plateau? In uh, Plateaus happen to everyone. So it's really important if you are a nutrition coach, you tell your clients, it's usually about six months-ish, depending on how heavy the person was to begin with. I'll tell them in this amount of time, you are going to plateau and warn them ahead of time so they know that when it happens, it's normal. The other sure. piece is binge eating behaviors will tend to increase as the body is going to try to send every signal to you to eat more. Um, sure. So what we typically do when I see a plateau, we can, we can see it coming because we'll see great weight loss for a little while, then it slows down, then it sort of stops. When I see a client's weight loss slowing, what is actually happening, one, their metabolic rate goes down, but the reason their metabolic rate goes down is usually because they become less physically active, even if they think they're physically active. So you may find out that if you're tracking steps, that instead of 10,000 a day, you're getting 6,000 a day. And that's a cycle. That's part of human psychology. That's unconscious that our body will do to So our body will try to try everything to slow down energy output. The other piece that I tend to see is people will tend to eat more and not realize that they're actually eating more. So when we see those plateaus, the way we deal with that is something called a refeed. So it can be either okay. a week, a month, or sometimes up to three months. I've had to put people into a refeed. And what a refeed is, is it's not a cheat meal. It's not uh -huh. a cheat. It's not going off the program. What it is, is you're just increasing the number of calories that people are consuming, but still adhering to mostly healthy foods. What that sure. does is it helps to reset the endocrine systems, allow them to start burning. Again, um, we make sure that during that time period, you want to really track your physical activity carefully and make sure Absolutely. that you're not subconsciously dropping off. The other piece that's really critical is making sure that you're doing resistance training. So I usually yes. recommend at least two to three times a week, um, all muscle groups. And that's so your body doesn't start using muscle <laughs> for fuel, which it will usually... What works is increasing physical activity while sort of increasing calories as well. Sometime between a month, I mean, a week and about three months, depending on the person, we will be able to see weight loss restart again. So that brings to the next one, which is on stress eating. And uh, there's a lot been written about stress eating already. So how does stress affect our uh, dietary preferences and habits? Are there any strategies to prevent stress-related overeating or unhealthy patterns? So remember we were talking about emotional eating? That really, stress sure. eating is very much the same thing. So when we're uh -huh. under stress, and actually there was some interesting studies I was reading about this. So let's back this up a little bit. Human beings by nature are binge eaters. If you think about it, back to hunter-gatherer societies, what happens? Food is scarce. You make a kill. You find some great you know, berries or fruits, what do you do? You overeat because, because that's 
how we survive. So if you think about that, that's your baseline physiology as humans by nature are binge eaters. Um, so we're sort of programmed for that. What's the problem when food is very easy to obtain? Like it is in a very globalized industrial society. It's very, yes. we don't have to go work very hard for food. So what happens is under stressful conditions, we tend to go seek out that dopamine hit and we kind of revert to our primal nature of binge eating. Um, yeah. How do we combat that? So knowing this, that we have plentiful food, what we recommend to help curb stress eating is to curb the stress as much uh -huh. as humanly possible. Exercise, uh, playing with pets, actually, believe it or not, can lower dopamine levels. Um, oh. Getting good sleep, which I know we're going to talk about. Sleep is actually highly critical to regulate stress. And uh -huh. taking care, you know, self-care activities. So we stop sure. the stress. Um, and then that can help sometimes curb that. The other piece is when I have a client that is at a point where they're so stressed and they have sort of lost control of it. I recommend journaling strategies. So as a okay. you feel the urge, like I want to go and eat, you know, a whole bag of potato chips and I want to deal with all of, I want to eat a bunch of donuts. I will have them instead write down what is stressing them out, how they're feeling, because it gives them a second to sort of self-reflect before they go right for that giant bag of potato chips. Um, what I'll also tell you is that um, clients that suffer from a background of trauma are uh -huh. very, it, this is very, very difficult because a trauma response will have them seek more food for yes. comfort, increasing the dopamine levels. So that's another piece that you want to pay attention to very closely. One other yeah. interesting thing to point out is a study was done in 2014 that found that there are some people who actually suffer from food addiction. And within the study, they took 136 adults and there were 23 that qualified as a food addict. And they actually tried to use uh, drugs to lower, to uh, uh, modulate the dopamine levels. The interesting thing was that people who were the food addicts did not respond to the drugs at all. And the people who were not food addicts decreased the eating behavior. So that's another oh, important okay. piece. People um, uh -huh. sort of, we see this in drug addiction where there is a physiologic mechanism where the dopamine may be completely out of control. So sorry, that was a little long-winded. Uh, to bring it back, uh, controlling stress is the best way to control stress eating. What exactly is food guilt? And uh, I am sure... Most individuals get a guilt when they consume a lot of food and they come back or they start contemplating about it. Why did they eat so much? And that's when the guilt uh, starts to happen. So what exactly it is? Why? How? What role does psychology plays in uh, developing this kind of uh, guilt feeling after consuming food? And uh, what are the effective ways that uh, one can cope and move past feel away from past feelings of guilt related to food choices food guilt is a very big thing so it's almost as if uh like public health messaging talks about healthy eating but they don't really talk about how to do it we don't do a good job sure. with that so people do develop a lot of food guilt um that's a real thing especially when people are trying to lose weight and restrict foods we start labeling foods as good and bad i try to tell my own clients that we, food is not good or bad. You want to eat more of something that's nutrient dense, less of something that's not. 
But when we start giving those food labels, that's where a lot of food guilt stems from. And again, some of it comes from public messaging. The interesting thing, going back to your topic of stress, is that women tend to have more food guilt than men, at least in the U.S., and binge eating tends to be triggered oftentimes by food guilt under stressful conditions. So that's something also to pay attention to. A real strategy to use to avoid that, don't label foods good and bad. Try to take an approach of eating 80% what we call nutrient-dense. I don't even like to use the word healthy because that assigns um, morality (laughs) to your food. Uh, 80% nutrient-dense foods, 20% can be fun foods, right? Whatever you want. Um, And being consistent with that type of eating plan can help reduce those feelings of food guilt because eating fun, even what we call like less nutrient-dense foods, is part of human civilization. Absolutely. We often crave for certain food items and most often we become addicted to specific food. So what are the reasons behind it and how we can manage cravings effectively? So food, this this topic of food cravings is something that's been well-researched, but there's no really good consensus as to what causes them. So um, a recent study was done in 2020 where they tracked a group of people and found that food deprivation or dieting over the short term very much increased food cravings. But if that diet was maintained for a long time, it decreased food cravings. Uh, What I'll tell you is I have seen that phenomenon with bodybuilders where they're getting close to their shows and they have to really be calorie deprived to drop their body fat levels very low. How do we get bodybuilders to stay on low-calorie diets? We give them the most bland and boring foods you could possibly imagine. So it's almost as if things that are more flavorful can increase cravings, but if you maintain Uh sort of a bland, boring diet, it decreases cravings. That being said, we don't really know, at least science hasn't really pinned down exactly what causes food cravings, whether it's something psychological, whether it's something physiologic sort of difficult to pinpoint. So again, going back to how do we control cravings, the same way we control our binge eating, stress, um, reducing stress, and keeping a consistent, sustainable diet will help to eliminate those. So that that brings me to the next one is on midnight uh, binge eating or midnight uh, food craving. How to cope up with that? Because this, I, I believe, is a common phenomenon across the globe, not only uh, in certain part of the world, but across the globe. And very often there's a lot has been already written. People try their own uh, ways to eat or consume what they prefer. And most cases it is either chocolates or, or something else, which is extremely sweeter at, at, to consume at nighttime. So what's your uh, thoughts around uh, midnight cravings? So they're actually very common and again, tend to come from stress eating. It's very, because we're seeking again, what types of foods, high sugar, high fat, those dopamine producing foods. So nighttime and tends to be a time where people want to relax and unwind. So people also consume a lot of alcohol at night as well. It's a common phenomenon. Um, What I try to get people to do is there really is something to reducing food intake about two to three hours prior to bedtime because consuming those sweet sugary foods significantly disrupts your sleep patterns pretty bad. 
So what I tend to try to do, what I would recommend is instead of consuming, if you really want to eat at night, there's nothing necessarily wrong with it, but I would go for a high protein food rather than something that's very high in sugar because the higher protein food will not disrupt your sleep patterns to the same extent and has the benefit of helping to uh, keep your muscle mass up so you don't break down as much muscle tissue at night. Um, it really has to do with, again, sure. changing lifestyle. What about your eating patterns during the day or leading to night eating? Are you consuming enough calories during the day? Yes. Okay. So food cravings at night are a very big issue for a lot of my clients. Uh, part of that has to do with lifestyle cho choices. Part of it may be that people want to unwind and relax at night and they start to crave sweet things again to get that dopamine hit, especially after a stressful day. I will tell you in my experience, uh, clients that tended to have higher stress jobs also tended to have more nighttime eating problems. So that's something to pay attention to. Uh, one of the things that we can do with clients who are night eating or a good suggestion that you can employ is instead of, if you feel like you must eat at night, go for a higher protein snack instead of something sugary. There's a couple of reasons for this. One, a sugary high carbohydrate snack will disrupt your sleep patterns. So you want to sort of avoid eating anything very high in carbohydrates within two, two to three hours of bedtime. The other piece is protein consumption, especially casein-based proteins before bed, will actually help you to break down less muscle tissue overnight. So something that we do with a lot of bodybuilders would be to recommend that they have a casein protein-based snack before bed. Um, the other piece is, again, look at your stress levels. Do you believe it's stress that's causing you to eat at night? Is it because you're not consuming enough calories during the day? Are you trying to diet during the day and keep very low calories and your appetite gets out of control in the evening? Those are all things you want to look at. But overall, we want to avoid eating high-carbohydrate snacks before bed. Absolutely. I think that was uh, very informative and, and most people would find it useful across the globe because binge eating, especially at night, is uh, quite prevalent. And uh, for each individual, it's very difficult to control their uh, food cravings, especially at night. Uh, most of the food habits emanate from personal motivation and it fluctuates uh, when pursuing certain nutritional goals. So what are the psychological techniques individuals can employ to maintain a long-term commitment to healthier eating habits? I I'm glad that you brought this up. I hate the term motivation. Absolutely hate that. Okay. The reason is because motivation is very short-lived. I, I adhere to, I, I train six days a week on weights and eat a very healthy diet and it does not come from motivation. It comes from discipline. So I, instead, when I have a client that says, oh, I don't have the motivation, I said, you should not be relying on motivation. You should be relying on discipline, set a plan, set a program and follow through. Don't rely on motivation because we tend to see a lot of motivation in the beginning of a program and it tends to disappear very, very quickly when it becomes less novel. Uh, motivation is what's going to get you through. And again, this comes back to that idea of creating a sustainable plan with smaller lifestyle changes that you can realistically do even when you're not motivated to do it. A um, good example of that is my husband. My husband's a physician and during his residency put on a lot of weight. He needed okay. to get the weight off and he had that, that physician eating pattern. We tended to eat a lot at night. Anyhow, um, what worked for him was creating a program of 
this is how I'm going to schedule my meals. I'm going to get, actually, he gets about 15,000 steps a day. Um, data trackers can really help with that because it removes the motivation. What you have to do is complete the task. It is a task just like brushing your teeth or going to work, uh, setting a step goal or setting a protein goal. So that can help lead to more discipline and less reliance on motivation. I am a firm believer uh, that comes to consistency. It's more of discipline that you need to stick to a certain schedule to achieve your goal rather than uh, being motivated and seeking external interventions to motivate motivate yourself, right? So that brings me uh, to the next one, which is on habit formation. uh, And specifically, what role does habit formation play in nutrition? Can How can we leverage uh, positive psychological triggers to create lasting healthy eating habits? And this goes back to a lot of what we were talking about, especially that discipline versus motivation piece. So a psychologist, uh, Benjamin Gardner, came up with this idea that habits are formed in three stages. The first one is initiation. The next one is learning. And the last stage is stability of the habit. Um, He theorized that it takes about 10 weeks to get from the beginning to the end. Um, is that 10-week figure completely true in practice? Not necessarily. I tend that w- I tend to see that with my nutrition clients, they need to have intense coaching for one to two years to maintain a lot of these habits. So, but I love the idea that there are different stages. And the stages cool. that initial motivation that you'll get is great, but like we discussed, very, very yeah. short-lived. So Absolutely. making sure that we set a plan and and sort of reward ourselves for consistently staying on a plan and meeting the behavior goals that we set for ourselves is something that can really help with habit formation. But when we really look deep down, you have to really want to do it. It's like anything else. You have to really want it and you have to be very committed and committed to a long-term commitment. Uh, public health messaging needs to be better about this. We need to stop telling people, lose weight, uh, do these short-term interventions or short-term programs, and we need to be focusing more on, hey, let's make this permanent lifestyle change. Um, going back to what we were originally talking about, a lot of healthy eating is going to stem from you taking a hard look at your lifestyle choices and see how your lifestyle can be modified to allow for a more consistent, healthy eating plan. So you talked about lifestyle changes. Uh, So are there any specific way to change the lifestyle? Obviously, it's it's extremely difficult to do that. Do you employ any specific interventions for your clients to help them change the lifestyle uh, that they are presently living? Um, Yes. What I see with a lot of my clients, I see a lot of mothers who are trying to, this is the most common client I have, maybe in their 40s, they have kids, they're trying to constantly balance their work, their children, and they leave no time for themselves. So a lot of the strategies that we use with those women are like setting priorities and removing guilty feelings about setting self-care priorities. So making sure that they get enough sleep is a really important intervention. Probably the most important intervention is going to be ensuring quality sleep. The other piece is ensuring that you have breaks during your day or maybe prioritize um, walks outside versus taking your child to another activity or prioritizing 
um, a lunch with friends or socialization and, and sitting down to have meals rather than trying to squeeze in more work. So those are the sorts of lifestyle interventions we're talking about. It's not just about diet and exercise. People tend to think that it is, but it's not. It really has to do with allowing yourself enough time and looking at an overall reduction in stress levels. In your profile, you also talk about you're helping certain uh, lifestyle diseases, including cancer patients, you, you help them uh, with certain interventions. So what are the typical challenges that uh, these patients face when it comes to food habits? And what are the changes that they need to adopt uh, to their food habits and lifestyle altogether? So I can actually speak from very personal experience about cancer patients. Actually, right now I'm sitting in a hospital because my son is getting chemotherapy. So what I'll tell you is my, uh, my son, my 15-year-old son has Ewing sarcoma and has remained extremely healthy throughout his chemotherapy. And that is from some of these nutritional lifestyle interventions. He's kept active, made good food choices, especially high protein and making sure he gets enough vitamins. So with these clients, um, especially with significant medical issues, there is a lot of uh, mental breakdown that occurs, especially with a disease like cancer, where they feel that they can't. And we do deal with a lot in my practice, a lot of cancer patients. Um, a lot of it is setting some of these little goals that they can achieve during their treatments um, to stay physically active, to not fall down into that psychological pit. And at times when they're um, sick and have some trouble, still trying to push through with some physical activity, movement, and to the best of their ability, maintaining a healthy diet. Yeah. Um, this happens uh, with clients who are struggling with drug and alcohol addiction. We tend to see a lot of binge eating with those clients because they almost replace the drug with sugar. So employing those strategies for them as well is really, really critical. Just setting very small goals, trying to maintain those goals um, that gear us towards a lifestyle, healthy lifestyle habits. That was quite insightful. Can you provide insights into connection between sleep quality and dietary preferences? Uh, and uh, does inadequate sleep affect our ability to make nutrition choices? Um, absolutely. So from a physiologic perspective, and I'm citing this from a 2022 20, uh, study, um, binge eating is highly correlated with poor sleep. Why is this? Um, when we tend to get poor sleep, our cortisol levels increase, our ghrelin levels increase. Now, ghrelin is a hormone that tells us we're hungry, and the hormone that is responsible for telling us that we're full, leptin, decreases with poor sleep quality. So this is something that physiologically we will tend to overeat with poor sleep and our stress levels increase tenfold when we don't get enough sleep. Um, but missing sleep is really common. Why? Because a lot of us try to squeeze too much into a day. Sleep tends to be the last thing we're thinking about. A lot of our focus with healthy lifestyle, we're looking at diet and exercise, weight loss, diet and exercise when we're not looking at sleep. So having proper sleep does, in fact, reduce binge eating. It reduces stress. It reduces the food cravings that we were talking about earlier. Um, one of the important things is making sure that we maintain good sleep hygiene. So ensure that you have at least eight, eight hours of space in your schedule for sleeping. 
You want to not eat high carbohydrate foods two to three hours prior to bedtime and you want to reduce distractions. So watching TV or playing with your phone will also affect your sleep quality. So those are some of the things that you can employ and having a good, nice routine at bedtime. Maybe you take your shower and you lay in bed and listen to meditation music, maybe part of that sleep, but really just looking at sleep as something that is just as critical as your nutrition is what we really highly recommend. And I do have an article specifically talking about sleep. I'm sure you've read it on the uh, National Academy of Sports Medicine blog. Yes, yes, yes. So uh, uh, aside sleep, does hydration also play any role in nutritional choices that we make? This was a very interesting topic because one of the questions that I get from clients, they'll come in and ask if they're drinking enough water. And typically I'll say, are you thirsty? (laughs) Because um, too much emphasis is placed on hydration. And yes, it's true that you can sometimes get hungrier if you're dehydrated, but most people are not really walking around super dehydrated and I think the there's really like a lot of the studies have shown that consuming huge amounts of fluid and water doesn't tend to decrease your appetite very much. So um, the other important piece is if people are tending to overconsume fluid, they get into a cycle. Like if I, I'll have a client where they're not seeing the scale move because they're consuming a lot of fluid, then their body uh-huh. starts craving salt. So then they, because your body is constantly balancing sodium and water. Um, They'll consume a lot of salt. And then what happens? They consume more water. And this cycle actually leads to the scale number creeping up or not falling. Um, The body, there's no harm to this because it's not fat storage. Your body will work it out eventually. But psychologically, that's actually a very big problem for people trying to lose weight. So what I recommend is you don't want to, you want to drink mostly water or zero calorie drinks. Stay hydrated if you need it but you don't have to hit a specific fluid goal for the day. And in fact, psychologically, that can be harmful. Yeah, that that brings us towards the end of this. Uh, So top three recommendations for all uh, the listeners uh, of this episode. Absolutely. So a couple of common themes that we discussed in this podcast. Number one, stress reduction. Two, make sure that your habits are long-term, consistent, sustainable. Uh, three, don't la- try not to label things good or bad foods. Try to maintain about 80% nutritious foods, 20% fun foods. Um, also, number four, your sleep. Absolutely get your sleep under control. Very important. Um, and then also maintain a high level of physical activity. Human beings are meant to move, not to sit. Thank you so much, Nicole, uh, for your time. It's a pleasure speaking with you and I look forward to speaking with you once again. Thank you. That's a wrap. Thank you for listening to Fitness Pro Chat by Fit Aerobic. We hope you had key takeaways from today's episode and learned something new. Don't forget to download and subscribe so you don't miss the next episode and leave us a rating and review on your favorite platform. In the meantime, reach out to us on Instagram at Fit Aerobic or through our website, fitaerobic.com. And remember, failures will only make you strong and better learned. Take care, stay healthy, and live a fulfilling life with Fit Aerobic.